Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Asosa E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we will be talking about how to heal fibroids naturally. To get this longevity party started, I'm gonna give you guys some more insights on the health disparities involved with fibroid diagnosis, five key components of a comprehensive fibroid healing program, along with some of the diet and lifestyle issues that can fuel fibroid growth. And later, we will speak to our incredible expert for today, Dr. Alan Warshawski. He is a board certified OBGYN who practices integrative holistic medicine. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. Okay, y'all, let's get all the way into it, okay? This topic is really near and dear to my heart because fibroids affect so many women, and Black women in particular are more vulnerable. In a journal article published in 2014 in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, it was entitled, The Health Disparities of Uterine Fibroids for African American Women, a Public Health Issue. It delved deep into the differences in treatment. So I'm going to actually literally read sections from this journal article here and link it in the show notes. Fibroids are more common and more severe among African-American women. Although this disease disproportionately affects the African-American population, we understand little about what causes this disparity. Fibroids should be considered a public health issue given the magnitude of the problem and the cost of the healthcare for this disease. In addition to having a greater lifetime incidence of fibroids, African-American women have a three-fold increased age-adjusted incidence rate and a three-fold increased relative risk of fibroids when adjusted for other co-founding factors. Some investigators suggest a doubling risk for Hispanic women, whereas others suggest that only African-American women have an increased risk. African ancestry is considered a key risk factor for the development of fibroids. That is clear. African-American women have fibroids diagnosed at earlier ages, are more likely to be symptomatic, and are likely to have different responses to medical treatment than white women. The size and growth rates of fibroids are greater in African-American women, and they are more likely to undergo surgical intervention than any other racial group. Approximately 42 per 1,000 women are hospitalized annually because of fibroids, but African-American women have higher rates of hospitalization, myomectomies, and hysterectomies compared with white women. Surgical treatment for fibroids is especially prevalent among African-American women because of both an early age of onset and more symptomatic disease. African-American women are two to three times more likely to undergo hysterectomy for fibroid tumors than other racial groups. As reported in the National Hospital Discharge Survey, the total rates of hysterectomy for African-American and white women were similar from 1988 through 1990. However, fibroids as the primary indication for hysterectomy was much higher for African-American women, 61% versus 29% for white women. This pattern was confirmed in another large cohort of 80,000 women, which again showed that African-American women had significantly higher rates of fibroid surgery than white women. Comparisons of the rates of hysterectomies and myomectomies in African-American and white women indicate that African-American women are more likely than white women to undergo both myomectomy and hysterectomy. Myomectomy appears to be even more common in African-American women with almost a seven-fold increased relative risk. With the increasing racial diversity in the United States, this means that if surgical rates are stable, fibroid-related surgical procedures and hospitalizations are projected to increase by 20 to 31 percent by 2050. That, I mean, this article blew my mind, y'all. Y'all can read the whole thing if you'd like. 
I'm going to link it in the show notes. But let's start the rest of this conversation with what is a fibroid? So we know a fibroid is a smooth muscle tumor of the uterus. It's composed of the same muscle tissue of the uterus, and it has estrogen and progesterone receptors. Generally speaking, the root cause of fibroids is a condition of estrogen dominance, too much estrogen in relation to other hormones. Here's the thing. We often have signs of estrogen dominance early on, but as women, we are taught to believe that our cycles are supposed to be heavy and horribly painful, and that is just life. Like We're just supposed to live that life. And I want to make a public service announcement right now. This is the biggest lie that sets us up for problems years down the line. So how do we figure out if we're estrogen dominant and catch it well before it gets really crazy for us? Well, we need to pay attention to our periods. If we're having symptoms like migraine headaches, cramping, heavy periods, long bleeding periods, if if your period or your cycle is lasting more than five plus days or up to two weeks and you're only off of your period for two weeks, if you have large clotting, estrogen dominance is present. For black women, we also really need to pay attention to signs of lactose or casein intolerance. So if you have stomach upset after dairy, if you have throat infections, ear infections, asthma, you need to get rid of dairy ASAP and you have to start young. You have to start with your teenage daughters. You have to start with your kids, especially if you notice these signs. Often we have these symptoms for years and ignore them, think of them as normal. And then later, poof, we have fibroids. So what are the five components of a comprehensive fibroid healing program? First, there's diet. We have to get our diet right. Um, It has to be lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, nuts, seeds, no processed foods, no high sugar foods. Um, Then we need herbs and supplements. We need exercise. We need mindfulness practice or mind-body practices. So that could include things like meditation, prayer, visualization, I also go into the subconscious mind um, with rapid transformational therapy with a lot of my clients. And if you haven't yet listened to my episode on the subconscious mind, I'm going to link it in the show notes to give you insights on this. And then last thing I would add would be alternative therapy. So you could add steaming, you could add acupuncture for rebalancing your chi, acupressure, castor oil packs, a lot of other healing modalities that can just kind of supplement and add to what you're already doing by hitting all of those other points. There's a myriad of things that make fibroids grow. We're going to go into this more with our guest because he is a bona fide expert, but I'm going to just touch on some of the basics. So poor diet, highly processed foods, eating foods that are highly inflammatory, sugar, high insulin states, decrease the levels of the protein in the bloodstream called sex hormone binding globulin, which is responsible for transporting estrogen in the bloodstream. So when we have lower amounts of that and a high insulin state, we can actually decrease circulating levels of estrogen and allow more of the free estrogen to get into our cells. Alcohol would be something else that I would get rid of. Um, dairy and meat. I would say meat, I would say if you're going to eat meat, it would have to be organic. Um, dairy for sure has to go. <laughs> and we just talked about why. Other toxins like xenoestrogens, things that mimic estrogen, things from our cleaning products, from our face creams, from all of the things we use on our body and from plastics. Um, also heavy metal toxicity can be a problem and cause other problems for our gut and, and cause imbalances there. And then stress. Stress is a huge one. And I think the biggest thing to take away is that The precursor hormone for cortisol is progesterone. So when our body is stressed out and pumping out cortisol, progesterone is actually used by the body to make some extra cortisol. So there becomes less progesterone in the body to balance out the levels of estrogen and we get estrogen dominance. And it just becomes this vicious cycle because if we're under chronic stress and we're highly stressed out, then that cycle just continues and continues. So I hope this gives you guys an overview The other thing I would say is that certain medications can seriously throw off hormonal balance and cause estrogen dominance. Steroids like prednisone, even the birth control pill, synthetic hormones, definitely, your body can have a reaction to them that then causes estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance is not seen in fibroids alone. So if you have cysts, if you have endometriosis, you have thyroid dysfunction, estrogen dominance is also present in men with prostate cancer issues. So this is a really widespread issue and 
The way we address it is holistically. We have to come at it from all angles. I hope that helps you guys. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk to our amazing guest. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of therawgirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Warshawski. He's the author of the book, Healing Fibroids Naturally, A Doctor's Cure. Although conventionally trained, he is a leader in the field of integrative, holistic medicine, treating men, women, and teens. In practice for over 35 years, Dr. Warshawski's practice combines the best of conventional medicine with the latest in integrative, holistic modalities. Dr. Warshawski is a board-certified OBGYN, but no longer practices OB or does surgery. He's a founding diplomat and director emeritus of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine, a member of the American Holistic Medical Association, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and a respected member of the Board of Zymogen Advisors. He was a founding physician and director of the women's program at Beth Israel's Continuum Center for Health and Healing in New York City from 2000 to 2003. Dr. Warshawski's practice covers many areas of medicine and healing. Some of them include the following, bioidentical hormones for men and women, fibroid tumors of the uterus, adrenal and thyroid metabolic assessment, food allergies, weight loss, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, chronic diseases, PCOS and endometriosis, menopause, andropause, and optimal aging. Thank you so much, Dr. Alan Warshawski. Did I say that right? Warshawski? That's correct. Thank you so much for writing your book. Uh, Your book, Healing Fibroids, A Doctor's Guide to a Natural Cure. That book um, basically was a lifesaver for me because I was looking for something to confirm what I was already doing. So I just want to say thank you first off for writing it. Well, you're very welcome. And uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, I think a lot of people need this information and they feel very alone when they're trying to walk the path of doing this a holistic way. What was it? What was the spark for you that led you from because you were at OBGYN? So how did you get into actually focusing on the healing and not just the procedures? Well, I actually had uh, one of those aha moments. Uh, I was in the operating room back in the day when I was doing hysterectomies. And um, one of my colleagues, uh, I was waiting for my case to start, and one of my colleagues was uh, doing a hysterectomy on a 40-year-old woman. Uh, you know, so mm. you, you jump in, you take a look what's going on. It's always a learning opportunity. And she had a normal uterus. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said to him, I said, what was, what's your indication for taking out her uterus? And he said to me, well, she just, I couldn't stop her bleeding. And at that moment, you know, I had already been, you know, involved with the, the holistic medical community, and I knew that there were other options. And that was the moment that I said, there's got to be other ways of helping these women through these medical and uh, um, other kinds of issues without uh, having to do invasive surgical procedures. So I started doing yeah. my own research and uh, putting together some protocols the most common reason for doing hysterectomies then and still now are benign uterine fibroids, uh, mm. which are extremely uh, prevalent, as you know. And mm-hmm. um, that's where I started focusing. And I started finding that even women who had had multiple myomectomies, uh, surgical procedures just to remove the fibroids, you know, I was finding that even in these women who are so difficult to control, we were having good success in preventing them from getting into the operating room a fourth or even a fifth time. Wow. 
Wow. Um, you break down the different types of fibroids in your book. Can you go over that now? Is this, and I also want to know if, if general OBGYNs know about these different types or if it's just like, oh, she has a fibroid. No, the, the classifications and the types of fibroids are pretty, pretty fairly well mapped out. You know, okay. And, um, you know, so you know, most gynecologists would understand uh, the different forms of fibroids and the problems that they may uh, bring along with them. So from the least problematic to the most problematic, I would say the pedunculated fibroids are the least mm -hmm. problematic. These are the ones that are attached to the uterus by a thin or a thick kind of a stalk. Uh, mm -hmm. They generally don't cause problems. The only issue with them is that before the advent of CT scans and MRIs, many women had surgeries because these fibroids looked like ovaries. So mm. thinking that this might be a large ovarian tumor, many women had surgeries for unnecessary pedunculated fibroids. Uh, the next the next one would be subserosal. So now they're not connected by a stalk. Now they're actually within the body of the uterus, but growing more outside the uterus. These are the fibroids that you know, indicate growth. These are the fibroids that women see when they lie down and they feel their belly and they feel bone mm -hmm. coming from different directions. These are the subserosal fibroids. Now, in addition to creating large, you know, increases of growth of the uterus and maybe pressure symptoms on other structures, intestines, kidneys, whatever, um, you know, these fibroids may also cause heavy bleeding, but they're not really that problematic. The next one is intramural. Now they're not really pressing on the outside. Now they're within the wall of the uterus and maybe pressing on the interior, the endometrial area. These fibroids mm -hmm. also increase growth. They could have all the same pressure symptoms, pressure on the bladder, etc. But they also, because of pressing on that endometrium, they can cause more heavy bleeding. And then the ones mm. that are purely submucosal. So they're within the cavity itself. So they're in the cavity where a baby would grow. These are the most problematic because these are the ones that are interfering with the normal mechanisms of the uterus, uh, shutting down blood loss. Uh, these are mm. also in a place where the uterus is trying to expel them because it's a mass within the uterus. The uterus tries to push out anything that's within the uterine cavity. That's why women have periods. The uterus is mm -hmm. expelling that menstrual flow. But if there's a fibroid mm -hmm. there, the uterus may try to expel that fibroid as well. So, and we call these, oh. yeah, we call these aborting. It's like an abortion, an aborting submucous fibroid or submucous myoma. So these are the ones that cause the most bleeding and they're the most uncomfortable because it's like the pain of childbirth. So every month, wow. like the, the bleeding of childbirth and the pain of childbirth without that little baby in your arms, all you get is another month to anticipate uh, another horror show. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, and, and why is it that the submucosal is harder to heal holistically? It just seems to be kind of, um, you know, a, a, a away from the blood supply. So the blood supply to this area is uh, not really that good. Um, mm -hmm. And um, these fibroids are kind of growing individually by themselves. They, ha they may have a stalk within the uterine cavity itself. And because of all the heavy bleeding and because of all the pain, you know, and, and, and the, you know, so we also, you know, so we do a lot of castor oil packs and external ways of reducing inflammation. These um, external uh, anti-inflammatory measures, just more difficult to get to that fibroid. Yeah, there may be okay. energy issues. I mean, because we also talk about energy uh, imbalances. We talk about, you know, the second chakra, which is the energy area of the pelvis. Uh, the chakras are the energy centers we talk about in the Eastern traditions. And the second chakra energy is all about relationships, creativity, and abuse. Uh, and mm. these issues may be uh, hidden within these submucous fibroids. You know, obviously, this is mm. not 
in perspective, but our approach is not purely Western in any, in any way, shape or form. So, you know, in dealing with these energy imbalances, again, you kind of think, you, you know, you, it almost seems like these fibroids are being um, protected at the very mm-hmm. center of the woman's body. They're the most difficult to get to. The ones we could feel abdominally, we could we could massage. We could have a relationship with them. So when we do cataracts, you know, we massage essential oils like poke oil or also called phytolacca. Uh, we massage poke oil into the fibroid with a visualization that the fibroid can now go, that the fibroid has done its job of identifying imbalances. And now with loving tenderness, we can allow the fibroid to leave. But that, that's the submucous or the pedunculated fibroid that we could actually put our fingers on. The submucosal fibroid is much more difficult to get to. All right. That, um, that makes a lot of sense. So it may be harder to reach. Tell me, you were just talking about a specific oil other than the castor oil that I'd never heard of. Uh, it's called phytolacca. So P-H-Y-T-O-L-A-C-C-A, mm-hmm. also called poke oil, P-O-K-E. Mm-hmm. It's been used for quite you know, a number of years. I've used it for 30 years for breast cysts. That's where... Uh, so I do actually have a what I call a holistic breast massage using essential oils, uh, massaging them into the breast tissue, again, with a meditation visualization exercise. Okay. And again, uh, assessing now fourth chakra issues. So poke oil or phytolacca has been used to help shrink uh, breast cysts and fibroadenomas. So I've incorporated into my use of the castor oil packs for that same reason. Mm, that's um, awesome. Again, there's no studies on this, um, but mm-hmm. I find that the more a woman can get kind of in touch with her body and with what's going on and to get beyond just the physical aspects of it, uh, there's a much more, greater chance of, of healing. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Explain to us what hormonal balance looks like in a normal woman that has no problems and how it differs when a female body then becomes, um, you know, able to grow these fibroids. Well, the, the issue in growing fibroids has to do with what we call estrogen dominance. Yes. Estrogen dominance is not a medical term. You know, even Mm. though you may feel that it makes a lot of sense. Um, this was actually a term that was devised, uh, by Dr. John Lee, Dr. Lee was um, the doctor that actually began using uh, natural progesterone cream Mm. for many conditions that he felt were related to this estrogen dominance. Now, Mm. in the normal menstrual cycle, you know, we've got basically two halves. Uh, The the average 28-day cycle has a 14-day start, which we Mm -hmm. call follicular phase where estrogen is the, is the hormone of the moment. So estrogen is being produced during the follicular phase by the ovary. And mm-hmm. then around day 28, uh, ovulation occurs. Now, this is a very well-orchestrated, just doesn't happen. It's a well-orchestrated uh, hormonal event. It has to do with other hormones like luteinizing hormone becoming peaked at a certain time. But in many, and then after ovulation, progesterone is produced. And progesterone is produced for two weeks. Uh, and then if there isn't a pregnancy, the progesterone is there to support any potential pregnancy. If there's no pregnancy after the 14 days, uh, the, the uterus sheds the lining. This is basically a progesterone withdrawal bleed. Uh, mm. And then the next cycle would begin. Mm. So this is, like, this is like a very well orchestrated situation. But mm-hmm. uh, in many instances, there's a problem with the production of progesterone in that second phase, which we call the luteal phase of the cycle. Now, this could happen for many, many reasons. It could be, uh, you know, something like polycystic ovarian syndrome. So PCOS is the most common endocrine disorder in women, uh, and it, it leads to less or no progesterone being produced. Uh, we know mm. that stress of all kinds leads to anovulation. So we know that during stressful times, famine, wars, etc., 
there aren't that many babies being uh, born because women are not ovulating regularly. There's a, a, a definite effect of stress on the ability to ovulate. So, yes. and then we've got, you know, we could add on to that by looking at all what we call the xenoestrogens or Z-E-N-O foreign estrogens. These are now the environmental estrogens, things like the parabens and the phthalates and the BPA and the BPA. Yes. So these are now estrogens that are coming in through the environment, and many times our body doesn't have the mechanism, the, the metabolic mechanisms to get rid of these estrogens. So they build up in our systems, uh, in men and in women, and they create the estrogen-dominant st- state as well. So all of these kinds of issues uh, would be um, part of the reasons for estrogen dominance. Uh, it could be related to detoxification issues. Mm-hmm. So women who have, again, if they're being uh, bombarded with many different chemical uh, you know, entities that they need to be detoxifying, there could be a limit to their ability to detoxify. So now estrogens aren't getting detoxified either. Mm. So many reasons for becoming estrogen dominant. And mm-hmm. one, once you're estrogen dominant, then... Um, the cells in the body that respond to estrogen can overgrow. And mm. one of these cells, the ones that we're talking about now, are the myometrial cells, the muscle cells in the uterus. They're responsive to estrogens, and mm-hmm. they will grow in a state of estrogen dominance. You mentioned that there was that, that fibroid tissue had receptors for both estrogen and progesterone, but it seems as though people don't talk about progesterone as much. Is it more about the balance of progesterone or can you also, can too much progesterone also fuel the growth of a fibroid? Well, this, this is actually very interesting. And this comes from the work that was started with the abortion pill, RU486, mm. also called mefpristone. This is what they call a specific progesterone receptor modulator. Mm-hmm. So this would uh, create a, a termination of a pregnancy because progesterone is obviously required for the success of any pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And if you deal with that, you're going you're gonna to have an, a, a miscarriage or abortion. Um, so looking at the work of the abortion pill and then looking at other forms of this medication, they found that, yes, you could shrink fibroids by using progesterone. And this would mm-hmm. be... Um, you know, this would be the the form of progesterone, uh, synthetic progesterone that would interfere with progesterone's effects on the fibroids. Now, progesterone can have either beneficial or negative effects on fibroids, and that would depend upon what's going on with the individual woman. Now, we don't have mm-hmm. ways of identifying these individualities, but we know there are different proteins in the cells. Is that mm. one called BCL2, uh, and there's one called BAX, and mm-hmm. they're in balance. These, like everything else in the body, these proteins need to be in balance. When you stimulate one of them, you increase growth of the fibroid. If you mm. stimulate the other, you reduce growth of the fibroid. So we don't have a way of knowing right now which protein will be stimulated by progesterone. Mm-hmm. Um, and my use of progesterone is, is usually in women who have smaller size fibroids who mm-hmm. are not responding to the estrogen balancing uh, effect and who need progesterone for other reasons. Mm. So women have uh, severe premenstrual symptoms in addition to their fibroids, or they have other breast issues in addition to problems with their fibroids. Uh, right. These are women who may need progesterone. And a trial, so you try it for three months and you see if it's causing any growth or not, would be a reasonable thing to do. Okay. There are synthetics. There are synthetic progestins. Uh, so from the RU486, they've now developed one called Ulipristal. Mm-hmm. This is goes by, in the, in the United States, it goes by the brand name of Ella, E-L-L-A. Mm-hmm. And this is an emergency contraceptive. So again, this is a strong synthetic progesterone, hmm. uh, um, progesterone uh, receptor modulator that causes a miscarriage. In Europe, they're using a smaller dose of this, something called Esmaya, 
E-S-M-Y-A, uh, and they're doing three-month uh, protocols with this Esmaya, and they're seeing significant reduction in fibroids wow. and significant reduction in bleeding. Um, it, this has been worked on. It, it is uh, approved in the UK and in the EU. Mm-hmm. The, US, the USA has not yet approved it. I'm not exactly sure why. Mm. Uh, there, there does not seem to be significant downsides. Right, right. Wow, that's great to know. Let's talk about let's talk about the gut. What role does the gut play in estrogen metabolism? I don't think a lot of people think about the gut when they think about estrogen dominance or rebalancing hormonally. Well, I would say that um, probably close to 100% of women who have symptomatic fibroids have uh, intestinal bacteria imbalance. Huh. And this, I, and I would, you know, I would say that this is something that has been agreed upon by other functional and integrative holistic practitioners who work with these chronic conditions regularly. And the reason for this, again, it, again, has a lot to do with stress. Hmm. Uh, studies on stress and the gut started, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, looking at third degree burns. So right. patients, people who had third degree burns. We noticed that they were having intestinal issues. They were actually wiping out their intestinal bacteria. So mm. they wound up with what we call leaky gut, uh, right. increased permeability of this uh, intestinal lining. And with the leaky gut, we have uh, additional issues of poor protein digestion. So mm-hmm. now instead of getting amino acids from our proteins, we're getting large protein particles coming through the intestinal uh, leaky wall. Mm. These proteins to your immune system, and about 70 to 80% of your immune system, just sits around the gut wall. We call this the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, or the GALT. Mm-hmm. And, and these, these, lymph, these, these lymph cells, they attack the large proteins, thinking that they're uh, large bacteria. Wow. So we saw a chronic inflammatory state. Uh, creating a lot of inflammatory proteins. The next step in dealing with these inflammatory proteins is the liver. So the yes. liver has to de- there's a portal system. So the uh, the enteroportal system takes blood from the intestines and brings it to the liver. Why would it do that? Because there's a lot of toxicity coming out of the gut, and mm-hmm. the liver is responsible for detoxifying. So now we've created all this extra inflammatory protein, and now the liver is now stressed out in detoxifying it. If the liver is stressed out in detoxifying all these inflammatory chemicals, it's also going to have difficulty, you know, metabolizing and eliminating the estrogens because it's just it's losing its ability. So now we have a combination of estrogen dominance and inflammation. And that's the terrible duo. That's ah. the dynamic duo that will drive fibroid growth. It's not just estrogen dominance. Estrogen dominance, you may get some small fibroids, but without the inflammation piece, you're not going to get large fibroid growth. Right. Because inflammation actually increases uh, other proteins in the fibroid, one in particular called VEGF, V-E-G-F, the vascular endothelial growth factor, mm-hmm. is a growth factor that grows blood vessels. Wow. So now we've got a little bit of a fibroid uh, nidus, so maybe a few or a dozen or a hundred little fibroid cells, maybe about a centimeter or so, nothing you could even feel. Yeah. We wouldn't even see it in an ultrasound. But now if we, and, and there is some estrogen dominance here. Right. Now if we add in the inflammation piece, and this could be coming from the gut, this could be coming from, you know, joint problems, this could be coming from the mouth. We now know that uh, periodontal disease, gingivitis, the inflammation doesn't know it's supposed to stay in the mouth. It goes wherever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've got patients with Alzheimer's with bugs from the mouth and the brain and patients with heart disease with bugs from the mouth and the heart. So right. why do we have bugs from the mouth in the uterus? Mm. I think we probably do, or if we don't have the bugs, we at least have the inflammatory effects. And now these little one centimeter nidus of abnormal cells develops a blood supply 
and now they could grow even more. So the more the more inflammation, the more the fibroids will grow. Hmm. What's the most common thing that you remove from someone from your patient's diet when you're trying to peel their fibroids holistically? Gluten and dairy. Those are the two most important. Okay. Um, there's many reasons for taking gluten out. I mean, gluten, I, I would say anything that's genetically modified in this country yeah. is probably not worth eating. Uh, 100% of gluten mm-hmm. grains in this country are GMO. Uh, they're, they're all Roundup ready. Roundup or glyphosate is a carcinogen. Yeah. You know, Monsanto has just lost three multi-million mm-hmm. dollar lawsuits, people developing lymphoma as a consequence of handling Roundup. Yeah. So, so that's one reason why gluten Jeez. is a poison. The other thing is that gluten actually increases leaky gut. So there's a protein called zonulin. Yes. Uh, it's a well-described uh, and well-researched protein that, when it's produced, will increase gut leakiness. Uh, probably the the most well-known mm. manifestation of leaky gut is a disease called cholera. So cholera, you're just pouring fluid out of the gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and cholera is probably the wow. highest disease with the highest level of zonulin. But gluten, in and of itself, will increase zonulin levels. Uh, gluten, when it's not well um, mm. when, it, when it's not well digested, creates gluteomorphins, which are like morphine-like. Sounds like morphine, and it is a morphine-like compound that has all kinds of effects in the brain and elsewhere. So, so gluten is not a good one. Mm. And then most people are dairy sensitive. They you know they think that they uh, have problems with lactose, with milk sugar. Uh, and they have lactated uh, milk mm-hmm. or lactated dairy products. But the problem is usually not lactose. They're usually not mm-hmm. lactose intolerant. They're usually casein intolerant. It's, again, the protein. And when you don't digest mm-hmm. casein, you create caseomorphins. Again, a morphine-like compound that has deleterious effects in the body. Um, now, and then, so those mm-hmm. are the two, I think, most important. I think corn and soy are probably close because those those are also totally genetically yeah. modified, either to be Roundup ready or Dow Chemical got into the action with their 2,4-D. It's a pesticide that they made from uh, Agent Orange. Uh, Orange, maybe some of your viewers have heard of, mm-hmm. uh, came from the days of Vietnam. That was the defoliant that they used, and we still have yeah. service people suffering the, the damages of Agent Orange. And now we're using a portion of it in our food, our so-called mm. food. So GMO foods and dairy and gluten wow. should come out. Uh, with leaky gut, the okay. problem is, though, people develop acquired sensitivities. So maybe gluten and dairy are sensitivities that you were born with. So many, many of the people, many of the people who come in with leaky gut issues and fibroid issues They've had problems when they were young. So when they were kids, they had constant throat infections, or they had constant earaches, or they had tubes put in their ears, you know, and they were always on antibiotics. And these are kids that were always dairy mm-hmm. and gluten sensitive. And, they, and that has created a lot of their yeah. leaky gut issues and inflammatory issues. But because of the leaky gut, they've now acquired other sensitivities to things that they eat a lot of. So food that you're eating a lot of, mm. whether it's eggs or citrus, you know, or, you know, coffee or alcohol or uh, any of the other potentially allergenic foods, you could be sensitive to those as well. And if you continue to eat them, you're not going to get rid of the inflammation because every time you eat them, your immune system is going to say, aha, here's that bug again. we got to attack it and create that chronic inflammatory state that's going to drive fibroid growth. So the first is we do a detox. We do a three-week detox. So the three-week detox allows us to identify foods that people may be sensitive to, and Mm -hmm. then um, reintroduce one food at a time. Okay. We have a reaction to the food. If they do, we keep it out. Now, foods that other foods that can be creating inflammation 
are the foods that contain what we call lectins, L-E-C-T-I-N-S. Uh, a lot of this comes from the work of Dr. Stephen Gundry, who identified um, the lectins in foods that could be damaging to our immune system. So uh -huh. there are certain lectins in fruits and vegetables that we can eat because, according to the theory, we have evolved uh, from tree dwellers. So we've evolved from animals that, grew, that lived in trees, and their uh, digestive bacteria have gotten used to those kinds of lectins. So anything that grows above ground or off the ground are foods that we could eat. But we have not evolved from the grazing animals. So the grazing animals eat the things that, are, that are grow on the ground. So grasses and grains and legumes um, and uh, nightshade vegetables are very high in these lectins that would be damaging to our gut bacteria. So we take, mm -hmm. out, we take out the lectins as well during that three-week detox. Now, the okay. most part of the detox is a week that we do no protein. So there are a lot of things to eat. You know, we call this an autoimmune paleo type diet. This is the most mm -hmm. anti-inflammatory type of a diet. Um, and um, during the three weeks, there's one week that you're not eating any protein. Why? Because we want to take away the protein that's driving the inflammatory reaction. We give you all your amino acids in a pre-digested powder. So you can get your amino acids, otherwise the body would break down lean muscle and uh, intestinal lining, and that would be uh, counterproductive. So we give back the amino acids, but there's a week with no protein to allow the gut to heal and to support detoxification and to reduce the inflammation. Mm. So it's a good beginning, and then from there we work our way into our fibroid protocol, which is a significantly hormone balancing and anti-inflammatory type of protocol. Uh, and we could either stick with the autoimmune paleo diet, if people like that, mm -hmm. or we could try adding back one food every few days, uh, making sure that the body is not going to give uh, some kind of indication that the immune system is still reactive. Yes. Love it. Um there's a lot of people out there when they're trying to approach fibroid healing from a holistic perspective where they kind of focus in on one supplement or one particular, you know, uh, herb or whatever. Um, what I loved about your book was that you, you broke down five different components of healing that, that need to be included. Can you talk a little bit about those? So we talked about the gut. We talked about... Yeah. Uh, detox. Certainly another piece, we've mentioned a little bit about another piece of that, and that's that the, the kind of psycho-emotional state. Uh, what, what is the, one of the underlying feelings related to the fibroid? So yeah. this, this is where we start talking about the use of castor oil packs. Um, yeah. And um, castor oil packs, so castor oil by itself is an anti-inflammatory oil. We use it for many different things. Uh, the packs go back probably about 50 years or, or more. Um, Edgar Cayce uh, was, um, I think he was more of a, a, a mentalist. I mean, he went into trance. He, you know, he would, uh, you know, you know, kind of work with people by going into a trance and telling them what they needed. He used a lot of castor oil packs. There's not a lot of research on it but they did seem to have anti-inflammatory effects. So we started using okay. that 30 some odd years ago and using the poke oil, as I said, um, from the physical perspective. And then mm -hmm. we found that it was more advantageous to add in some visualization exercises. So whenever yeah. we use castor oil packs, I'm always um, instructing uh, women on a visualization exercise. So we would... Um, you know, from their ultrasounds and from examination, we would be able to have an idea of where their fibroids are, and we'd be able to draw their fibroids for them and show mm. them what they look like. And then uh, while they're doing their um, visualization exercise, they would be visualizing the blood supply to the fibroid, bringing the healing herbs. So we use herbs, you know, things like uh, 
uh, uh, green tea and curcumin, turmeric, mm-hmm. you know, anti-inflammatory. They're also natural ways of reducing that vascular endothelial growth factor. So we use the herbs and we use enzymes, so systemic enzymes. These wouldn't be enzymes that you would be taking uh, with your meals. These would be enzymes mm-hmm. that you're taking on an empty stomach, uh, not to break down the protein in your food, but instead to break down the protein of the fibroid or to break down the inflammatory proteins that the fibroid is being driven by. So, um, right. so we use the herbs, we use the enzymes, we create a visualization, a picture of, um, we, of what the fibroids um, look like, uh, how the blood supply might be addressing them. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, we talk about and we visualize breaking down the interior of the fibroids by allowing mm-hmm. the supply to get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the fibroids seem to be full, you know, and this is uh, the woman's own visualization, then she turns uh, each one of those blood vessels into a pipe. Each pipe has a little turn-off valve. So now she's shutting down the blood supply to the fibroids after the fibroids are full of the uh, herbs and of the enzymes. So that's the visualization. And then uh, along with that, they want to pay attention to, you know, what I say, what comes up. What are the emotional mm. emotional issues that come up? Now, I used to get women, you know, I had a couple of women especially that, you know, got very angry because they thought I was blaming them for their fibroids. It's nothing of the kind because we all store emotional energies in different parts of our bodies. Right. So the, and this has to do with the chakras, the energy centers. The second chakra in the pelvis, as I said before, is about relationship. So it's you and the entire outside world. It's not just people. It's money. It's finances. It's job. And then it's the creative. Mm-hmm. What do you have in your life that you don't want? Or what's not in your life that you do want? Or it's any of the abusive issues. So that all sits right okay. in the area. And the same way acupuncture works to break down the blockages in the meridians, these mm-hmm. blockages can be coming from these emotional, stored emotional issues. Mm. The, the identification of these issues and then journaling has been shown to be effective in allowing to eliminate these stored emotional issues. So that psychological piece is extremely important. Um, okay. Identifying what may be what may be the underlying issues that aren't being addressed by taking curcumin and green tea and some enzymes. If you don't yeah. address the underlying issues. Things are not going to improve. Yeah. And then, you know, so we talked a little bit about um, inflammation uh, and how that could be driving things. And, you know, certainly we know that about a third of the population in this country is either pre-diabetic or diabetic. Yeah. So there are a lot of sugar problems in this country and uh, and insulin problems in this country. And yes. insulin is a very inflammatory hormone. So anybody who's eating a lot of sugar, which also would come out of any kind of a detox, we try to eliminate as much sugar as we can because sugar creates more est- more insulin need and insulin is an inflammatory hormone. You know, insulin resistance is an inflammatory state. You could actually become an adult onset diabetic just because of inflammation. Doesn't have to because you're eating too much sugar. It just could be an inflammatory state. So mm. be aware of that and dealing with that either by increasing exercise, reducing sugar foods, um, you know, maybe using supplements like chromium to support uh, healthy insulin use, and the, the new technique of intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting means that you're not eating for 14 to 16 hours a day. Uh, it's easiest to do that overnight. So I recommend people not eat, you know, past, say, six or seven o'clock at night and then wait at least 14 to 16 hours before the first meal the next day. So this is not just for weight mm-hmm. loss. It does help for weight loss, but this is anti-inflammatory again, because if you're not eating late at night, you don't have to have insulin working all night. 
if you do eat late, yeah. a lot of people have a cookie before they go to sleep. That means you've got to have insulin working all night. And insulin, as I said, is inflammatory and insulin is fat storing. Now, if you had a, if you ate a pasta meal and then you ran a marathon, you're going to burn off all those carbs. But if you eat that pasta dish and then you go to sleep, you're going to store all those carbs as fat. You store them as triglycerides mm -hmm. in your muscle, in your liver, um, and in your belly. And what is that? We used to think that fat was inert, that fat didn't do anything. It just sat there. Now we know something completely different. We know that fat, adipose tissue, are hormone factories. And the hormones and the chemicals that they produce are all inflammatory. Right. You're storing fat because you have a sugar dysregulation problem or insulin resistance or eating late at night. Then you're going to also have problems with inflammation. And another hormone that these uh, adipose cells make is estrone. So an estrone, you may know, is one of the three major estrogens that women make, estradiol, estrone, and estriol. Estrone is a very mm -hmm. strong estrogen, and it's a very inflammatory estrogen. And that's what's mm. being in fat cells. So getting the sugar out of the diet and reducing the need for constant insulin. Mm -hmm. so people, now we're on quarantine. People are just overeating. You have nothing yeah. else. You're sitting at home and eating. And so this is, again, creating this state of more insulin being produced and more insulin uh, resistance and more inflammation. Awesome. Um, one last question. Um, there's a statement in the book where you say that no, um, you basically said that no woman should really consider a hysterectomy um, unless it's the, the fibroids are life-threatening. And I feel like I feel like it's the first time I've ever I ever heard a medical professional say this, and I was ex I was excited by it for on behalf of my clients. What are some of the common dangers of hysterectomies or myomectomies or those procedures? Well, the the worst the worst consequence is death. I mean, there is there yeah. is a you know uh, there is a, a certain incidence. I mean, obviously, the more uh, we learn about surgery, and the more we do, I mean, the, you know, the, there's a reduction. But in, uh, I think I had a, there was a statistic in 1975, there were almost three quarters of a million hysterectomies done in this country, and 1,700 deaths. So that's wow. a major consequence. You know, certainly any time you do major surgery, you have a, cho a chance of injuring other organs. You know, mm. so especially with laparoscopic and robotic surgeries, uh, which mm. have a very steep learning curve. You know, so many, uh, you know, active gynecological surgeons don't really get enough cases so they can do these kinds of procedures, you know, very well. So, I mean, yeah. if you have a doctor that's only doing one or two of these a month or fewer, they're not going to be very well versed in these more technologically challenging kinds of surgeries. So you have more mm. problems. Uh, another major issue that's still being worked on is the problem of malignant fibroids. So at this mm. point, even, you know, so here we are in 21st century dealing with fibroid tumors for uh, half, a, you know, for almost a half a century or more. Uh, we still don't have a good way of identifying malignant fibroids until they're out at the pathologist's office because it's only mm. the number of cell divisions per high-power field under the microscope that tell us if it's a, a malignancy or not. So it's 20 cell divisions per high-power field. So what is 19 mm. cell divisions? So that's, that's, that's a very cellular fibroids on the borderline. But we don't have a way of telling. So in doing a lot of these uh, minimally invasive procedures, uh, these large 8 or 10 centimeter fibroids need to be taken out through a 1 or 2 centimeter incision in the abdomen. And this requires that the fibroid be broken down, or the, the medical term for it is morselated within the abdominal cavity. Mm. And when they, when they were doing this, they started to find that they were morselating some malignant fibroids. And this was disseminating malignant fibroid tissue throughout the abdominal cavity. 
Wow. Because these malignant fibroid cells are extremely invasive. And these yeah. women, there's very, there's no, there's no cure for uh, metastatic uh, leiomyosarcoma. So now they're doing uh, the morselation procedure within a bag, within the abdomen. So you mm-hmm. put the, first you get the fibroid, and then you put a bag through your two centimeter incision. You inflate mm-hmm. the bag in the abdomen. You put the fibroid in the bag. You break down the fibroid, and then you take it out little by little. But just in explaining that to you, you could see how potentially complicated and what the learning curve mm-hmm. like that might be. And to this day, I still have many patients come to me that their gynecologist told them they should have a hysterectomy uh, because of mm-hmm. their fibroid. And I, I would say, well, if you need surgery, why not just take the fibroid out? And the response is, my doctor says it, it's not going to work that way. Well, it's only not going to work that way because the doctor's not comfortable doing it that way. Mm. So there are a lot of difficulties um, uh, related to the removal of fibroids, whether it's by hysterectomy or by minimally invasive techniques. And um, a lot of it has to do with the, the very steep learning curve on these new procedures. Okay. Um, this has been amazing. Where can um, people find you online and um, where I bought your book, I think from like Google play. And then I was like, Oh, I need the hard copy. So I bought the hard copy. Where can they find you online and where can they find this book? Well, my, my website is uh, drallen.com. Uh, so that's both B-O-C-O-R-A-L-L-A-N.com. And mm-hmm. the book is on Amazon. Okay. Awesome. We have many patients who come in from the Middle East, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out wow. why there's such a large fibroid population in the Middle East. I would only suspect it has to do with the petrochemical industry and a lot of the environmental yeah. toxins in that area. Uh, but they're getting a hold of the book. I do, we have patients from Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and wow. they're, coming in, they're coming in with the book in their hands. Wow. So, the book is available. They're picking it up, you know, where they are in their country. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to say that the book is still in print and it's still being uh, bought and it's still being, it still seems to be very useful in helping women to get started at least on working on their issues that are driving the growth of these, of these tumors. And I just want to say, I mean, just in reference to what you mentioned before about don't take them out unless they're gonna, unless they're really a lifestyle issue. This was the comment that was made from the American College of OBGYN that mm. as benign tumors only need to be removed if they're causing quality of life issues. So it doesn't yeah. have to be dying from them, but if you're having significant quality of life issues that you can't deal with from other ways, that would be a reasonable reason to take out the fibroid, but not just because it's there. I mean, before we mm-hmm. were doing uh, minimally invasive surgery. So, you know, I started doing uh, obstetrics. I was delivering babies in the 70s. We had many women who had fibroids uh, who went to term. Uh, they, had, they had normal babies. They had uh, normal pregnancies. They had, may have had a few extra bulges in there on their bellies from the fibroids. But we had rare complications from fibroids in pregnancy. Um, mm. I that they're non-existent. They certainly do exist. And a lot of it depends upon where the fibroid is. I mean, obviously, a fibroid growing within the endometrial cavity is not going to be uh, conducive to a healthy pregnancy. Yeah. But those intramural and the subserosal and the pedunculated fibroids, they were never a problem. Yeah. They were never a problem during a pregnancy. And most women, unless, like I said, their gynecologist talked talk them into it, they didn't have hysterectomies. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. This has been really informative. I think it's going to help a lot of people, and I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. You know, thank you so much again, Asosa, for giving me the, op- the opportunity to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. All right, y'all, it's time to take some questions from Instagram and email. 
Remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM, slide up in my DMs, respond to the call for questions on my profile at The Raw Girl, or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. The first question is from Nat Fierce 115 via Instagram. Thank you so much for coming to the chat with Simone Shepard. Shout out to Simone. <laughs> what are your thoughts on vaginal steaming for uterine health to help prevent fibroid growth? Natalie, I'm really glad you asked this question. Um, many of my clients ask about this, and I tell them that vaginal steaming is not a substitute for a comprehensive fibroid healing program. Um, steaming your vagina is not going to address what we already discussed in this episode with, as the root cause of fibroids, which is estrogen imbalance or estrogen dominance. Vaginal steaming is not a new practice. There are records of this practice for hundreds of years in Mayan and Central American culture. Um, and the tension of the process is to cleanse and revitalize the uterus and vagina. However, there's no medical evidence or research to suggest that vaginal steaming is beneficial in any way. And you do need to take some precautions for the following reasons. If you're adding steam or heat to the vagina, it can provide the perfect environment for bacteria that cause yeast or other infections to thrive. The vaginal skin is really delicate and sensitive and easily traumatized. So if, if the steam is too hot or there's not enough precautions taken, steam may cause the vaginal burns or scalding. And then last but not least, it's kind of unknown how the steam can impact an individual or if pregnant, a woman's developing baby. So some herbs could cause miscarriage if they were used. So no one should use steam or herbs in, on their vagina if they're expecting. So basically, if you choose to engage, take precautions, but it sounds as if it could be an adjunct therapy that would be beneficial along with a holistic healing program that addresses the root cause. I really hope this helps you, sis. All right, ladies, it is time to close out the show. Hopefully this show has shed some light on the root cause of fibroids, what causes them to grow, and what's possible if you approach your healing from a holistic perspective. I pray that this show leaves you with hope and a place to begin. If you are suffering from fibroids or already have signs of estrogen dominance, it's really important that you work with a licensed holistic professional to help you design your program and get you the right supplements, herbs, and lifestyle interventions for your body. If you need me, I'm here and I work with clients virtually all over the globe. And you're also welcome to contact Dr. Wachowski's office. And please, please, please pick up his book, which is an amazing resource, Healing Fibroids, A Doctor's Natural Cure. I'll leave his office information in the show notes um, just in case you would like to contact him. Remember, all disease has diet, emotional, and spiritual components that have to be addressed in order to re-imbalance. Today, I'm going to leave you with the poetic words of Lucy H. Pierce. She says, our bodies speak. If you would only listen, they speak another language, the mother tongue. It's half the puzzle, the missing pieces you have been searching for, the how, the why behind the symptoms you fixate on, the wound behind the healing, which cannot be found at the bottom of a bottle of pills. But you do not speak our language. My sick sisterhood, whose bodies have been felled by mysterious illnesses, bearing the arcane names of men long dead to signify their suffering with no cure, no hope. The mothers who long for answers to the questions that their bodies are living, for solutions to the protest against this cold, hard world. Into their dry, hungry mouths are dropped pills, not answers. Prescriptions and descriptions of the symptoms, not cures or laws to halt the toxic corporate world that is allowed to carry on felling us like trees in the Amazon. Each woman is an Amazon, but she does not know it. Instead, she is treated separately. Her pile of notes, her bills growing higher and higher. Each one believes the sickness is hers alone. Each is sent home, ignored, tolerated, alone, in the darkness. Until one day, 
medicine woman arises within her. And there, in the center of her pain, she finds her outrage, her strength, her persistence as she searches for answers. She finds the will to die to this world and the right to live a different life, where she is honored for the value of her soul, not the sweat of her brow. She begins to understand the messages of her body is sending. Things are not right in here, out there. She begins to remember there is magic in her, the power to heal, the power to transform. Medicine woman rises. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or you have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. For more about the show, to subscribe and listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com.